0: Well, good morning again, everybody. I hope that you've had a good week, and it's good to see you here through all of the, the snowstorms and stuff as we can continue our series today. Um, I just wanted to share, I'm going to share with you a lot of things that I read this week, and one of the, the earliest things that I read this week was... Um, I was reading over something, and it just reminded me how, you know, growing up, my dad was fortunate enough to have a DeLorean, but he only drove it from time to time. Ha ha, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. That's what I'm looking for. See, one of the Christmas gifts I got was a dad joke calendar where I get daily nuggets like that that I just love to share with you. But you know, this week, um, as I said, I did a lot of reading, and it was a a tricky message for sure. It was probably one of the hardest ones I think I'm going to have within this series as I tried to keep a division between the gift of prophecy and the office of prophet and trying to understand the meanings behind those and the significance of that. But even as I tried that, I know that there's going to be different crossover with all of the offices and our understandings with the gifts as well. But it made it difficult this week, and it kind of reminded me with the offices and how they, they work together, how we live them out in the church, and how, again, the variety is important for unity. And I read this this week, and I wanted to share it for the opening. <clears throat> it said, Think about the difficult task of leadership in the church. It's not easy to bring a hodgepodge of natural-born sinners onto the same doctrinal page and to get them pulling in all the same practical directions. One man cannot go it alone very effectively, nor can a group of men whose gifts lie in the same basic field of service. However, if God grants the church a variety of different leaders, like we see in verse 11, into a variety of different roles with a variety of different gifts and life experience, their combined aggregate of wisdom, experience, and ability may just be able to get the task done. The church will achieve unity because of its leaders' diversity of gifts, roles, and personalities. The same could be said of its lay people. As Christians, we all possess different gifts for the same reason the human body has different joints. Our hips, knees, ankles, toes are all quite different. And when we walk, in fact, the various joints in our lower bodies bend in quite different directions at times, and to varying degrees. Indeed, it is only because they do that that we are able to walk effectively. Were they all the same, walking wouldn't really be possible. The overall unity of our walking, then, is predicated upon the diversity of our multiplied joints. You know, as I read that this week, I was encouraged about the differences as we approach some of these hard subjects. I was encouraged about the diversity within our group and and how we come together united under the banner of Christ. And as we are eager to dive deeper in the Word, understanding once again that the variety can be used by the Lord to strengthen each other. So today as we look at our verse in Ephesians 4.11... Um, we're going to be studying the office of the prophet and how, God, how Jesus gave some to be prophets. And again, we want to focus on the actual person and the position as best we can, focusing on their impact to the church and what all of that means. Now, within that context, we see how all of the offices are a gift of Jesus to build the church up, to build up the body, to equip the saints for ministry. And again, even though I compiled a bunch of different material to dump on you all, a lot of that was for the gifts. So I had to do some more reading this week, um, and I dug a lot deeper into church history to find some interesting things that I'm going to share. But as we open, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, as we begin to unpack some of these harder things, I just pray that you would give our minds clarity and understanding um, in bits and pieces as we're able to take it. Lord, that you would continue to give us a passion for your word, to dive deeper, and to gain the understanding that you would have us to know. And in all things, Lord, we want to honor and glorify your name with all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So again, just like last week, I think it's good to start off with the question, um, getting your minds working a little bit. Um, Writing down the answer to this question will be beneficial to you. So if you have your bulletins, you can write this down. But simply, who or what is a prophet? How do you understand the term? And again, this is an exercise to get you to be thinking about it so you know what's going in to the study as you enter into it. You know, we can look to the Old Testament for some good examples, sure. We can find their, their functions and who they were, but we also want to keep in mind that Paul is not talking about the Old Testament prophets here in Ephesians 4. He's talking about people that are presently there building up the church. We'll get to those who those people are in a little bit. But again, who is a prophet? What do they do? How do you understand their role? In the Old Testament, prophets were people who had an encounter with God. And as a result, they received a message directly from Him. These messages came in the form of dreams, visions, external voices, internal voices, etc. And they were to relay that message to a person or a people group that God called them or told them to go to. The word was always God's and never the prophet's. Now, the messages had a variety of uses or force behind them. You could have proclamations of judgment or salvation, woes, assurances, admonitions, you know, telling the people what they're failing to do, judicial speeches. Sometimes it meant to predict future events. And that's the one that we like to hang on to. That's the one we like to identify With a prophet. But it was really just a small portion of what they did. Very simply, a prophet is to be the mouthpiece of God, his spokesman. The prophet was to accurately relay the message to the people so that it was God's message and not the prophet's. I think of Ezekiel, one of my favorite prophets. God tells him his duty and his role in several places early on in the book. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says, I send you to them, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And, you know, as you continue to read Ezekiel, you begin to think, I don't think that they're really going to know that a prophet has been among them because they were pretty far gone in terms of their belief a little bit later in Ezekiel in chapter 3 beginning in verse 16 it says and at the end of seven days the word of the Lord came to me son of man i have made you a watchman for the house of israel whenever you hear a word from my mouth you shall give them warning for me if you say to the wicked you shall surely die and you give him if i say to the wicked you shall surely die and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked ways in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but the blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, but his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. You know, Ezekiel was one of the first books that I read after I received my call to ministry, and it scared the bejesus out of me. In a good way, in a healthy way, in a way that allowed me to understand the importance of following what the Lord calls me to do, to say what he says, the importance that we all have with him leading our lives. Now, I think that there are too many prophets in the Bible to really count how many there are, especially when you get into the anonymous prophets and things like that. Um, And there are moments of prophecy that just happen once or a few times, and then it gets again into that tricky area to where it's hard to say, do we call this person a prophet just because they exercise the gift of prophecy? Uh, One example of that, I'm thinking of the 70 elders with Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verse 25, then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. So, again, because someone has one prophecy, does that make them a prophet in terms of the office? Or where is it that we draw that line for office and just using the gift in the moment? You know, oftentimes we might make that delineation or that understanding of the office of a prophet as well, the Old Testament prophets, they had a book. So that's a good indication that they were prophets. And I would agree. But you also had prophets like Elijah and Elisha who didn't have a book, but very prominent in, in their prophetic ministries. Um, and Elijah also talks about how he's the last one, how Jezebel had killed all of the other prophets of God. And they were unnamed, uh, unnumbered in that instance, which I think is important because it emphasizes that it is more about the message rather than the person. I think that's a truth that needs to be unpacked with each of the offices that are listed here in Ephesians 4. Because once somebody gets a big head, it becomes about them or about the structure rather than about God and serving in the way that he calls us to. And that can take a person down the road of error. And of course, when we're talking about prophets in the Bible, we also have to talk about false prophets, those who claim to speak for God but actually don't. In the Bible, we see this a lot in the Old Testament where they would surround the king, all of these prophets claiming to to speak for God, saying, oh, you're fine, king, you can keep doing whatever you're doing no matter how wicked it is. You had other people um, mediums, oracles, you had divinations, magicians, seers, all listed in the Bible that would get their powers from more demonic sources. Peter, Paul, John wrote to the new churches to be on the lookout for false prophets in many of their writings. It was a danger to the young church, just as it is a danger for us today. To battle against what is false, you need somebody to stand up for truth. You need to know what truth is. The young church used discernment when it came to prophets and apostles in the Didache. It's a short read. Um, It is kind of like a manual of church operations, so to speak. It was written in the late hundreds to early 200s about the early church. And again, it's just random things about church life. And they have... Um, some sayings about apostles and prophets that I wanted to share with you today. And concerning the apostles and prophets, act thus according to the ordinance of the gospel. Let every apostle who comes to you be received as the Lord, but let him not stay more than one day, or if he need, a second day, a second as well. But if he stays three days, he is a false prophet. And when an apostle goes forth, let him accept nothing but bread until he reaches his night's lodging. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. I thought that was pretty interesting. Verse seven, or verse 7 in this chapter of the Didache. Do not test or examine any prophet who is speaking in the Spirit, for every sin shall be forgiven, but this sh- sin shall not be forgiven. But not everyone who speaks in a spirit is a prophet. Except he, "...except he have the behavior of the Lord. From his behavior, then, a false prophet and the true prophet shall be known. And no prophet who orders a meal in a spirit shall eat it, otherwise he is a false prophet. And every prophet who teaches the truth, if he does not, if he do not what he teaches, is a false prophet. But no prophet who has been tried and is genuine, though he enact a worldly mystery of the church... If he teach not others to do what he does himself, shall be judged by you. For he has his judgment with God, for also did the prophets of old. But whoever shall say in a spirit, give me money or something else, you shall not listen to him. But if he tell you to give on the behalf of others in want, let none judge him. And it goes on to warn about idleness and how they treat prophets, and they would call them their high priests. And probably one of the most reasonable lines within it said, Let everyone who comes in the name of the Lord be received. But when you have tested him, you shall know him, for you shall have an understanding of true and false. Really showing how the young church relied heavily on the gift of discernment. How the young church understood the word of God. And again, as our last message talked about, in keeping in step with the Spirit, to be able to know the truth, to where we see how believers in every age, even the new church, were to be on the lookout for false prophets and to be able to know the difference between what was false and what was true. So let's look quickly at some of the New Testament prophets. Again, you had moments of prophecy such as Zechariah, speaking over John as he was a baby, or Caiaphas, the high priest, in his moment of prophecy, even though he didn't know it was a moment of prophecy, when he said of Jesus, he would die on the behalf of the nation and thus spare it. But then you had actual named prophets in the Gospels. You had Simeon and Anna. You had John the Baptist and, of course, Jesus, all having specific messages that they were giving to the people. And as Jesus is talking to the people, he, he gives the one parable, he gives the one instruction about how this generation was going to receive the sign of Jonah, and how the Ninevites would rise up against this generation and their unbelief. Because you had the Ninevites, who were strangers to the, to the Israelites, who were strangers to Israel's God, they were able to recognize the presence and authority of God through the person of Jonah. Whereas Jesus, who is greater than Jonah, could not be recognized by his own people. To me, this is such a painful teaching in the history of Israel. Because the people were so caught up in what they wanted the Messiah to be that they would not acknowledge or receive him. And he was standing right in front of them. They could not recognize the authority and presence of God a warning that I hope is not lost on the church today. In the early church, there are several places where prophets are mentioned. Um, One of the more famous, non-famous ones is Agabus. In Acts, he has a couple of places. In chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Now, in these days, prophets, plural, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And again, in Acts 21, we see Agabus as well as four daughters who prophesied. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, And deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So within within that last passage, anyway, we see how Paul is able to trust the word of God coming from Agabus, even though it wasn't a pleasant message. He recognized Agabus in this role of prophet. He recognized him as in this position as a mouthpiece from God, even though Paul himself was also a mouthpiece of God. Paul probably exhibited every one of the offices in Ephesians 4.11 as an apostle, as a prophet, evangelist, a shepherd, and pastor or shepherd and a teacher, but he still allowed others to speak into his life because he knew through discernment that this was a message from God. In Acts 15, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words, and they had spent some time and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. So we see Judas and Silas also named. And probably the most interesting uh, passage I want to share with you today is in Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mennaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit said set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work for w- to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed and placed their hands on they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So you look at this list of guys. This is a ragtag group of guys. This is an every walk of life type of thing. Um, You have Barnabas, who who we know well, Um, and you also know the way that they would list names in the Bible would be by order of importance. So Barnabas would be the leader of this. Simeon, called Niger, it's because he was darker than everybody else, so he was probably from North Africa. Lucius would have been more of a Greek. Um, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod, so he would have been in the Jewish lifestyle, close to the political Pieces there, and then Saul, the one who persecuted the church. You think about this group of guys and how they made such strong movements within the church. I think this group exemplifies the unity through diversity that Paul writes about in Ephesians 4 very well. How unity in Christ brings this group together. And how God uses them to advance his mission forward. So we see in Acts 15 how Judas and Silas strengthened and encouraged the brothers. We know from 1 Corinthians 14.3, it says everybody who prophesies builds up, encourages, and comforts as they're bringing the word of God. We see the judgments and the admonitions from Agabus as well. We see how these are the results of what a prophet does. And with the definition of the mouth being in the mouthpiece of God, how then do we look at this office today? Again, as I said, it's one of the trickiest in my book to try to understand. And I don't understand it very well. I, it's hard for me to separate it from the gift. But I would say that for someone in the Bible to be named a prophet, there would need to be a track record. You know, even from their first prophecy, they would announce themselves as a prophet of God. Sure, false prophets do the same thing. But then they would be tested. And over time, the word would be verified. And people would just know, similar to Paul and Agabus. It doesn't mean the prophet can't still fail. I mean, you look at Moses. He was a mouthpiece of God, and yet he still struck the rock and failed. Let me give you another example of how to maybe understand how this could be lived out practically. There are people, I assume, that we go to when we need prayer. Why? Why don't we just pray ourselves? Could it be because we think that their prayers are holier? Or when they pray, things actually move? Because we know that they're going to pray? And they have a gift to just pray. It's a burden on their heart. We have pastors and preachers that we listen to on podcasts or YouTube. Why? Am I not good enough? (laughs) I do the same thing. But why? Maybe because we like their style. Maybe because their words hit harder, and we can just know truth when we listen to them speak. We can understand that there's something different. See, there's things in our faith where we can just recognize that God's hands are on someone. We can't fully explain it, and we don't fully understand it. But we can just know that there's a difference. With prophets and prophecy, there's a great deal of skepticism, and for good reason. But I think that when something is said from the Lord directly to you, you will know. I'll mention this again when we get to the gift, but I hear this type of thing all the time from messages. People will stop me at the end or at the end of the service and say, how did you know that I was going through this? Or, man, you spoke right to me today. It's like, no, I didn't. That's the Lord convicting you through the Spirit. Maybe using me, but I'm not that smart. (laughs) You know, I've sat under prophetic prayer before, and there are times where people were praying things that I knew it had to come right from God. There's no way that they could know what they just said. Similar to when Jesus calls out Peter, when Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus says, you wouldn't have known that unless God told you. I've sat under that. And I've been blessed by that. But I've also sat under prayer Where it just failed miserably, and I thought, man, this is worthless. That's where discernment comes in. But because of those bad moments and those bad experiences, we have a bad taste in our mouth when it comes to prophets and prophecy. Now, I'm not advocating for an official office. I'm just sharing how people treat the outcomes of things. As I said, when it comes to an official office, it's hard for me to nail something down and say something definitively, because we need people to speak on behalf of God in this world. But what does that practically look like? Let me just share with you another reading this week. I want you to pay attention to it, because it really hit hard this week. With the rise of Pentecostalism, new questions have been raised about the gift of prophecy. The Reformers, Luther and Calvin, limited the spontaneous character of prophecy by defining the gift as the proper exposition of scriptures. Hence, they popularized the idea of prophecy as preaching. During this past century, Benjamin B. Warfield's well-known cessation theory and dispensationalist arguments based on the reading of 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10, suggests that the perfect has come in the form of Scripture, thereby ending the need for any continuous form of revelation. And And it has led many to argue that if genuine prophecy exists at all today, it can only be understood as the exposition of a previously existing authoritative text, namely Scripture. If prophecy is viewed as revelatory in nature or as in any way providing for new revelation, regardless of content, it is said to then conflict with sola scriptura. So a little bit of church history for us as we go back to the days of Reformation. And even though as we hear this, we can agree with everything that's said. I mean, that's how I normally view prophecy is through preaching. But I would say to go deeper within this subject... And this is what hit me this week. We need to recognize this is how we were trained to believe. We believe in this because, dare I say, our apostles of the Reformation told us this is how it is. And other views of prophecy would then hinder a major tenet within their movement, sola scriptura. Again, going back to what we talked about the last couple weeks in terms of eisegesis and what we are reading into the text in order to make our theologies work. The Bible does not say that the apostles and the prophets were built upon the church, but that the church was built upon the apostles and the prophets, Ephesians 2.20. This is an important distinction The church did not hand out apostolic or prophetic authority upon certain people, nor should it. It was the Holy Spirit who chose certain individuals to receive and deliver the truth of God. The church can never authorize a prophet. They can merely recognize a prophet as coming from God. Neither the people of Israel nor the church ever ordained anyone into prophetic ministry. It was the job of God alone. And because it is the job of God alone, it cannot be controlled by the church, which makes us uncomfortable. Because what we're called to do in the Bible is to test the prophecies. But if you get rid of all prophecies, then you don't have to test anything. But that's what the Bible calls us to do. And we as believers, just like every believer in the generations before us, are called to use discernment to know what the Word of God says. It's not my job to know the Word of God for you. You need to be studying the Word to be able to discern what is true and what is false. Because, I mean, yes, I will screw up, but I also cannot be there holding your hand to tell you every single moment. That is where we need to take that step, where we need to recognize the presence and the authority of God. The Bible tells us that we are not to despise the prophecies, 1 Thessalonians 5.20. It says that we are not to quench the working of the Holy Spirit or put limits on Him. Instead, we are to keep in step with Him. And again, that takes us out of our comfort zones of consumerism And coming to church just to see what I can get out of it. And it puts the onus back on me to have that walk, to have that relationship with God. And it can challenge our control. And it can be tough to walk through. But you know, when God puts something on your heart, how do you respond? This week I had... I had an encounter that kind of shook me a little bit. I've had several of these in my life. Um, You know, I was going into Fairway. I was getting some groceries. And as I was going by the produce part, some worker walked right past me. And immediately I got a sensitivity of the spirit, an impression in my heart, something demonic is right there. And, you know, it's like, okay, that was interesting. I keep going. I just continue to pray and, and think about, all right, how, do how am I going to respond to this? How am I going to act on this? What do I need to do, Lord? And I continue to be in prayer as I, as I shop. And it's just a quick trip, and I get up to the line. I'm waiting in line, and this person was bagging groceries three aisles over. I can physically see the ticks. I can physically see that she is disturbed in her heart and mind. And I continue to pray. Alright, Lord, just give me an opportunity. So then as I get up there, I, she comes over three aisles and starts bagging my groceries. Nobody else is there to take the cart out, so she does. And I try to start some small talk. Nothing. She's unloading the groceries into my car. And I can just see the agitation in her body gestures. Like she does not want to be around me. And it's fairway. Everybody's friendly at fairway. <laughs> and she just, she never said a word. And she left as soon as she could. And I sat in the car as she walked away. and I just prayed. And I thought, Lord, what could I have done differently what did you want me to do in that situation because when you think about what the bible says do you just go and pray over a person i mean you got to be sure right and lord put two scriptures in my mind the first one was when jesus said that the fields are ripe but the workers are few And it really challenged my definition and understanding of what it means to be a worker. Do I do what God calls me to do? Or do I just accept this job as a pastor and take in the money and just do a sermon and, and things like that and call it a day? Or is my life about doing what God calls me to do when he tells me to go do something? The second passage That he put on my heart was Acts 3. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go up into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And I literally stared at that passage for about 10 minutes. As the Lord was teaching me about the American church. This is the American church. Gold and silver? Yeah, I got that. Here, there you go. Be on your way. Power? Sorry, you're born in the wrong age. Should have wished you were born with the apostles. We have no power. And it broke my heart because as I watched that girl go back into the store, I'm sitting there helpless, conflicted in my own head and mind about these debates that we have. Is this for today? Is this not for today? Is this real? While there's a person potentially being oppressed, not knowing the gospel message. There's people like that all around us And we have the gospel message. We get to come to a church. We get to worship God. We get to celebrate him. But lives are broken and shattered because of sin. The only hope they have is Jesus. And we have him to give. I pray continually for the wisdom to know God's will. I need to pray more for the courage to do it. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we continue, Lord, some of these harder discussions, so so much of the hardness we put upon ourselves. Lord, we, we love you. We love your word, and I pray that you would make it clear to us. I pray that we can be walking in step with your spirit so that we would have that same sensitivity and that we would just know what it is you're calling us to do in those moments. That we don't have to go through dissertations or all of this stuff, but Lord, that you would just write it on our hearts and that we would obey. Lord, I pray that you would continue to teach us your word. None of us have arrived. Each and every day I learn more and more. I'm so grateful for that. Each and every day I learn how broken I truly am. I'm so grateful for the grace that you have given. Give me the boldness to not be ashamed of the gospel. but to share it with all that I see. May people see my life and recognize your authority and presence because I am your child. Not because of an office or a title, but because I am yours. Lord, help us all to live in the grace that we have received respond with people with gentleness, patience, and love while holding firmly to the truth that is in your word. And help us to explore those teachings, those things that make life easier, make believing easier, but might not be what the word teaches. Just help us to explore it, Lord. May your truth be exposed in all areas. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Will you please stand for our last song?